Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. Plushcare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Cheaper Than Therapy, a podcast that journeys into conversations that demystify, destigmatize, and desensitize what goes on both inside the therapy room and in daily life. I'm Vanessa Bennett. And I'm Danae Logan. And we are seekers, soul sisters, and holders of sacred space. Every week, we sit down for soul-provoking conversations with fellow seekers, thought leaders, change makers, and even real people during live coaching sessions as they navigate the hard work it takes to be a human. This is Cheaper Than Therapy. Today, we have a guest on that I would say is a special guest. Uh, Yeah, he's awesome. He is one of the best friends of my partner, John, and I was privileged enough to meet him a couple years ago when uh, John and I first started dating and kind of just instantly fell in love with him. He is, in my opinion, a gem of a human. Yeah. I, you know, I've, I've heard you talk about Buddy for a while and sort of never really had the opportunity to talk with him or spend time with him, but he is just like such a light. He's one of those people where you're in his presence and the energy sort of shifts, right? Mm -hmm. Like I think um, such a thought leader and such a way of speaking to things in the broader context of what we're doing here and making meaning. And he's just, I don't know, I felt so inspired talking to him. Yeah. He's got this amazing way of taking, I think, topics and concepts that a lot of people might think are like woo-woo or out there and bringing Mm. them down to a very conversational level and just, you know, I love to like roll around in crazy concepts with him because they're not actually so crazy. It's just that people on the outside might think that they are, you know, but then when you talk with Buddy, you you walk away going, oh yeah, wow. Like I really, I really felt that. (laughs) Yeah. And I think he also like addresses provocative Mm -hmm. things in a way that makes us really sort of digest them, um, sit with them, be, be curious about why we're resistant to sort of staying in that space. And, you know, to your point, I think he does that with some of the, the concepts that are more existential and more, um, you know, the woo woo to some, you know, that, that can feel hard to sort of wrap your head around. I think he speaks to them in a really digestible way. Yeah. And I think part of it, um, is his ability to use words as, I mean, Mm. words are his art form. Right. Right. And so he has this way of being able to take this stuff and, and turn it into a very, he's very disarming, I think Mm. also in his presence. And Mm -hmm. I think that's also part of his art form, right? Because as a spoken word artist, you need to be inviting, you need people to come in and, and want to watch you and listen to you and connect with you um, more so I would say than like a painter, right? Because they're actually connecting with you, the person when you're a spoken word artist. So I think that is part of his ability because of that too. Yeah. He's, he's so moving. You know, we, you, you and I were talking about and watching some of his content before we had the opportunity to sit down with him and I would just like sit and sob through it. And then through a lot of this episode, I was just crying through so much of what he said. I think um, he is just such a moving human, you know? Yeah. Hope you guys enjoy this conversation. Uh, I think we plug it too in the conversation, but if not, all you got to do is Google him, Buddy Wakefield, W-A-K-E-F-I-E-L-D. 
and and go into the rabbit hole like Danae calls it because there's so much <laughs> out there of him and he's just he's phenomenal so mm. enjoy We are so excited for our guest today. We have Buddy Wakefield with us, and Buddy is an American spoken word artist, a three-time Poetry Slam world champion, and the most toured performance poet in history. Um, his works have been featured on HBO's Deaf Poetry Jam, as well as his work being released by Strange Famous Records, Righteous Babe Records, and Bloody Publishing. Um, and we're just so unbelievably thrilled to have this opportunity to talk to you, Buddy. So thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me and for being unbelievably thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> the last time I saw you um, in person, because we're in quarantine, um, was it, it was either New Year's, but I, I saw you perform your latest book on stage in Los Angeles. Yeah, what a show, huh? Yeah, and that, that was, was amazing. That was a lot, and it was in, it was in my dream venue, which I think is probably weird for a lot of people to hear because mm -hmm. it was only a 200 seater, but I love Dynasty Typewriter and the fact that it's even affiliated with Genji Cohen makes me love it even more. Yeah. And uh, it's just got the perfect intimate setting, the perfect size, the perfect aesthetic, man. I had such an amazing time. And I don't know if you remember, but I was at the end of the first leg of this world tour and, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I've been touring for 20 years and largely alone. And uh, I decided on the way to that show that I really wanted my uh, 100 percenters with me, some of my best friends in the world. So mm. I, uh, I devised a plan to pick three of them up. And on the way, we picked up three more and each each one didn't know about the next one that was coming. So the first three had no idea we were picking up the next one. And when I, and I planned it all out in these fun ways where they were hitchhiking and, <laughs> and running into them at the park. And yeah, anyway, so it, there was a lot of love in the room that night and, um, uh, and a lot of emotion, I will say from myself included. <laughs> I think that happens in a lot of the show. Yeah, it was phenomenal. I, you know, I would love to actually hear. So for people who, who are out there who might not know a lot about, you know, spoken word. I mean, I know I myself was never really a big follower, honestly, until I met you. And now I've kind of like dived into the kind of like well on Instagram and, and YouTube of, of what the world is. But how did you, you know, find that? Like, how did you get your star? I mean, obviously you're in Los Angeles, but I'd love to just hear a lot about your background and your story. Yeah, how I got my start. First, let yeah. me just commiserate that I also am not all that into spoken word. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're the easiest, you know, the word poetry is just the most make funnable art form. And none of us that are, that, you know, make a living at it are unaware of it. Because mm. <laughs> it's, you know, I think most art forms are probably 90 to 95% really bad when you get right down to, you know, when you Fair. put everybody in the mix. With poetry, I think that number jumps about 98, 99%. <laughs> 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 I think a lot more narcissism is involved. Yeah, but when it's good, it's really good. Mm -hmm. And I am, I am um, lucky enough to be surrounded not only by some of my best friends, but also the best in the world. And mm -hmm. so I get to see it done right. And I think we up each other's game. How I got my start was... Uh, finding out that there was something you know when I was a kid there was poetry slam and I always had confidence in my in my lyrics in my words and when I found out there was something where I didn't have to torture people with my guitar playing and singing any longer mm. I I was on it yeah <laughs> I just rock my words and the first night I did it uh there was a lot of serendipity that happened around Saul Williams and uh I was in Seattle at the OK Hotel before the earthquake took it. <laughs> I'm Aww. old enough to say some shit like that now. <laughs> Back yeah, before yeah. the earthquake took it. And it was a, it was just a miracle night. The energy was spot on and mm. I was spot on and the audience was spot on. And, and I never looked back. You know, I say so much of these things with, with John because we're all the time talking about serendipity and, and um, what leads to it. And mm. if the formula for this life um, which I've said before, and is something I heard before is to live to your highest excitement with zero expectations of the outcome, which I mm -hmm. believe it is. And I mean, zero expectations. Mm -hmm. That's how, that's how this career happened because I was just so excited, like little boy excited mm -hmm. to, to write, to get up on stage. And I had no idea. I had no idea I was going to end up here making 
a living doing mm. poetry for 20 years. I, I really, you know, I come from a family that's, you know, we start at minimum wage and we work our way up. And I just mm-hmm. figured I would do poetry on the side and that would be the exciting part. And, but were yeah, you always I, like a lover of poetry? I mean, did you write ever since you were a kid? The second part, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wrote since I was a kid. Never been a lover of poetry. Mm-hmm. Really, not a well-read poet. I'm more inspired by movies and um, people and music and well, just life experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that. Yeah, poetry is not necessarily the instrument uh, I play mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of uh, that I like to in terms of reading and getting my information. Mm. It's so interesting to hear you, buddy, talk about serendipity and just like the energy around your work, because I've been, I got to admit, geeking out, like really consuming your work all weekend. Um, And, you know, we talk as therapists sometimes about this thing of like something being channeled through us. We don't even know where that that advice or that point of view came from. It's just like something speaking through us to another person. And when I watch you on stage, I am so struck by there's something clearly moving through you. It's, I don't even, I mean, and maybe you can speak to what you think that is or what your process is around that, but it's just breathtaking to watch. That's really kind. Thank you. I think everything you just implied about a channel is legit on point. When I was Younger, I didn't even I didn't recognize that that's what was happening. Uh, it, it took a long time to dissolve my ego. I think I matured a lot slower than most of my peers, hmm. and um, and still working on it. Uh, by the way, um, it wasn't until I guess around two two thousand fifteen that uh, the channel made itself clear, and hmm. it makes itself clear when we build our capacity to uh, let the love of it. Hmm stay Mm. and not just pass through on stage and not just pass through when I'm writing or, Mm. but to stay. And, um, that's where I think becoming a professional slips in just being aware of the channel that none none of this, none of this life that we're experiencing Mm. channel, the metaphysics of this life, none of it's a mystery. It's about, it's the, the secret to magic is investigating. There's no real magic trick. I, I don't find any of this to be an enigma. Um, when the when I'm in a place where I don't understand something, the, the answer is available in the moment. I may mm. not get it all at once or know how to have the catalog of language to let it all pile out of my mouth at once. And it's, we're not supposed to most of the time. Right. But um, I suspect most of us have heard dozens of artists refer to it. And, you know, like myself at some point, I probably thought it was just the right thing to say or something, mm. something hokey. And uh, it turns out it's it's not in that when we allow um, the revelation of a truth and a cliche to get to live without the cliche around it any longer, mm-hmm. that's how I get to be aware of the channel and be stoked on it and mm-hmm. not, you know, scoff at it. Because I'm so busy flipping cliches in my writing that when I hear them in life, I often just don't give them the time of day. So like, you know, growing up hearing channel or namaste yeah so what's up on channeling you know it goes further with um with a, even more awareness you know again in 2015 when i got serious about meditation the more present i became the naturally occurring result was serendipity and from there a bliss and uh, from there, an opportunity to recognize how to exist in sustainable joy. Now, mm-hmm. all of that said, I'm nowhere near like where Eckhart Tolle is, where he's yeah. just really uh, maintained the consistency that I have not. You know, I still, I'm still, I still go through the loop. I feel, mm-hmm. you know, the older I get, I'm coming out of it. What I mean by go through the loop is because I'm going back to 2015 to now. You know, I've mm-hmm. been sober for almost a year, uh, mm-hmm. but not in between uh, the scientists who made drugs were really good at it mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and the scientists who learned how to process awful foods deliciously are just doing it proper addictive mm-hmm. style <laughs> and so i find myself in the greedy wanting pleasant right uh, like the loop too that much. you were saying yeah. yeah yeah and so i get caught in that which can be its own tricky stitch because I'm so aware of that, which strengthens me. Mm. And I feel like I've been in a state of graduation mm. uh, where I'm, I'm 
I've been through that ringer so many times. It's exhausting. Mm-hmm. I'm so happy to be aware of coming out of it. I love that. I actually was going to jump on what you said about meditation because, you know, as a, a pretty avid meditator myself, I think it's great what you say about how meditation, you know, and, and I talk a lot about intuition and I talk about it a lot with my clients and kind of strengthening that inner voice and, and really starting to pull in that voice from the external and learning to hear the internal, right? So many of us can't make our own decisions. So many of us need all these people to weigh in. Um, you know, we need everybody and their brother to tell us what to do, but we can't hear it in our in ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I think what you said is great. It's this idea that meditation, you get quiet enough and all of a sudden, things like serendipity start to become more prevalent. It's not that they weren't there before, right? Because serendipity is happening all the time around all of us. It's just that we're not still enough or quiet enough, or that voice is not, you know, our eyes are not open enough to actually be able to see and experience and feel them. And so I think to your point, meditation is one way that that stuff starts to become so much more available to us. Yeah. And none of it's, it's all, it's all in alignment, these learning experiences along the lines of what we're talking about. I remember there was a point when I had been uh, just in a state of bliss and it was, you know, it's like, a year in i was in the bathtub reading the end of a new earth by eckhart tolle mm. toward the end of the book which is my favorite book by the way Me uh, too. it's oprah's favorite book too. <laughs> <laughs> that, that validates it completely mm-hmm. <laughs> but i was at the end of it and eckhart says basically and this isn't verbatim but he basically says so when you become established in presence don't be surprised if the naturally occurring result is frequent specific serendipity coincidence Mm. kismet synchronicity and uh and that was such a reaffirming moment for all that i had been experiencing and it started to build on other things like a channel and not just the art that comes through the channel but a series of of new metaphysics revealed themselves to me. And I don't mean to sound like an enigma. I just don't know how far we're willing to go about other planes and go as far as you want, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) And aliens and we're along for the ride and and normal and normalizing Hmm. and normalizing the existence of energies uh, beyond us. And this is where Mm -hmm. we do get into uh, uh, uncomfortable territory for a lot of people. And I think part of my job, I think, is to just sort of plant that seed mm-hmm. uh, because I don't have a lot of loose clothing and a bun on my head and speak too softly yeah. <laughs> or, you know, overcompensate mm-hmm. uh, with, uh, uh, I think you know what I'm getting at. I'm just pinpointing the stereotypical male yoga instructor who, <laughs> who, is, who is really fucking pissed off inside and trying to pretend mm, he's not. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I don't know your audience. Talk to me about cursing. Are we good? We're good. Absolutely. (laughs) You know, I feel like I I wanted to back up for just a second about something that you just validated for me and that I think is the experience of a lot of people. And that is, um, you know, I'm a sober woman as well. And I think for me, a lot of what I was afraid of in sobriety was losing what I felt was a connection to magic, um, to some sort of like thing in the world that, you know, like I tap into when I'm in this space. And if I am like fully in a conscious space, I won't have access to that anymore. And what I have found is something very similar to what you're speaking to, where I am um, in the clearer space, I am able to channel those things more clearly. Mm -hmm. I have access to those, um, those realms a little bit more easily. I don't know. Like better than you did before. Absolutely. Like I didn't have access to it before. I thought I did. I thought I did, but it wasn't, it wasn't real. I don't know. It sounds like you moved through the suffering of sobriety and and found that. And uh, yeah, it is a lot more clear when um, we're on substance on with intoxicants. There's a, there's a mute button that happens. Buddha and, and, Buddha warned of tranquil, tranquil planes, tranquil states of existence because Mm. they look like enlightenment. Mm. And, um, that really resonated with me having, you know, been on drugs for 31 years. And it sounds like you were, uh, you know, with hallucinogens, which is how I started, but I'm kind of an all or nothing guy. So mine eventually ended up, you know, I slammed meth for, for quite a while. Mm -hmm. Um, because boy, does that feel amazing, <laughs> despite, despite how disgusting it is. Uh, 
I don't know which scientist thought throwing a bunch of corrosives together and shooting them up your vein was going to work, but it did. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, there's a a mute button that happens, obviously, Mm. with something hardcore like that, and and less with hallucinogenics, not even in the same ballpark, really. Um, But it's the difference between having your your cell phone in the basement and then just being in the wide open with it mm-hmm. in terms of reception and, and how much information one's able to get. And again, for me, it's been an awareness of the capacity to hold more energy. Mm-hmm. The more I let uh, the energy in me grow and stop giving it away all the time or stop trying to explain it away mm-hmm. all the time. And I just, and I take a lot of time for myself in meditation and otherwise mm-hmm. to let that energy Uh, capacity grow the more and more that information starts pouring in i think it wants us to share that with each other you know humans are the masters of limitation Mm. something isn't hard to find you can just sit still and it'll come (sighs) and and so i think when we find these planes if you will there doesn't have to be an eagerness to reside in them all the time and more of a sharing with each other just like the information that's happening worldwide now about Mm. more material things yeah I, you know, it's interesting because I, I didn't think that we would necessarily hang out too long in the addictive space, but you said something that was like, that just, I don't know, I felt it kind of in my body. So many times when I work with clients who are struggling with addiction or more often than not, I get the clients that come to me because they're on the other side of the relationship with an addict. Um, I myself as a codependent, uh, they are very drawn to me, I think because of the work I do myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you say this idea of a, of a mute button, there's so much that I explain to people around addiction, which is this fear that people have a feeling, right? And it almost is an overwhelming fear of feeling too much and not being able to handle it, right? And so they need a mute button, or at least they think they need a mute button. And that's where so much of it comes into play. And as myself, not struggling with addiction to substances, but struggling with addiction to fixing other people's emotions... I don't know. There was something about that that just kind of hit me because it's like, I can actually relate to the idea of a mute button myself without Mm. having ever actually been on the substances. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Angle. I'm so good at exercising my trauma and navigating Mm -hmm. suffering. And I like doing what I'm good at. And I think that's why I get, you know, I had a friend one time who's a great meditator and a great man and someone I really respect. And he smoked cigarettes and he, he, you know, he would do all these things. And at the time I was in a really clear place. And I said, Ray, why would you do that? He said, it's just too bright, bud. Mm-hmm. And, and I really, I, as, as I, as I grew, I really grew to understand that as well. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it is just so bright and I haven't, there've been periods when I just haven't had the capacity to carry that much love and brightness. And so I, I've allowed myself to be pushed back into, wow, I think I could, I think I just better ground with a bunch of cheeseburgers, <clears throat> which is, you know, it's like human form, right? I mean, sometimes we have to come back down and put our feet on the ground. And whether that's through cheeseburgers or through drugs or through whatever, uh, sex, you know, all of these things that we use as humans, um, we all can't live in the light all the time. Yeah. But I think, I think we're human. we can. You think we can? I do. I do. We still have to, you know, we still have to finish out the journey through these bodies. So it's within mm-hmm. reason, you know, I don't expect that we're all going to dissolve in front of each other. Right. But I do think there's a sustainable joy. I think Eckhart Tolle is a real model of that as well. Mm-hmm. I saw him on an interview on YouTube with the Dalai Lama and I think Neil Donald Walsh. And, you know, n- nothing. They look like kids next to him. Mm-hmm. They look like children because Eckhart is so present and mm-hmm. so practiced in it without any of the titles or the intellectualizing. He's just in it. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's been sustainable for him. So I really see him as a model of it. And, uh, and I'm thrilled he's on the planet. And I think there's so mm-hmm. many more like have the airtime. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's what, I, that's what it's, uh, the three of us are really looking forward to growing our capacity and, uh, right. and continuing to get word out there. That part's exciting because, you know, I wrote, I put my first three books out of print because I went back and read them and I was so embarrassed about how, authoritative I sounded on subjects Mm. like this and I had not put any of it into practice I I had this knowledge and this awareness but I was so much it was just a mouthful of answers Mm. instead Mm. of listening and I'm so happy to be in a place where I'm where I'm ready to listen a lot more I think Mm. that's necessary right now especially right now 
right? So as we're recording this, obviously, we're in the midst of the tail end of the quarantine, which is coming out, and now there's another spike of COVID, and also the black. Or is it? (laughs) Yeah. Or is it? Um, And obviously, the most recent, uh, you know, call for justice and reform around Black Lives Matter. Exciting. I know. I know. I was listening to your Farmly video. Um, Yeah, that was intense. That poem this morning, and I was just sitting there sobbing. I feel like listening to that in this moment was just so powerful. And I'd love if you would speak to, yeah, what is coming up for you a little bit in this moment, um, you know, given your background and and where you grew up and how you understand some of the the fears that are being activated and some of the, the traumas that we are collectively moving through in this moment. Yeah. Thank you for thank you for asking me. Uh, Cause I don't feel like now's the best time for me to speak to everything. So co- it feels good to be, to be, to be able to process it out loud. Mm-hmm. Um, Farmly is, is a, is a short film I did. It's on uh, YouTube, F-A-R-M-L-Y, uh, like family, except Farmly. Um, and it, the, the, it's everybody in it is a member of my family. There's nobody who's not my family in it. And it's a really intense <clears throat> piece about growing up in the South Mm-hmm. Um, my family was really generous and let me aggressively uh, process myself in mm-hmm. this piece, uh, being implicated the entire way for our misinformation and, and lack of awareness and mm-hmm. and racism and homophobia and uh, believing in the rumor of being poor. Mm-hmm. And so I just wrote this to somebody. I know that if I had been born straight, I would have been a douche. I would have <laughs> I would have used. <laughs> All that information and that privilege, and I would have done, especially judging by the character in my family, I would have done everything I could have to protect my own position and safety. Mm-hmm. And so that's a disturbing awareness that I, I know to be true because I know myself and I know um, safety didn't come easy. Uh, there, there was never a time I felt safe. Um, and so any safety or privilege I did have, I would have wanted to protect. And so holding on to that um, and carrying that with me into greater and greater awarenesses, you know, I, I had to be called out and I had to be called out by relentless good people who were unafraid to do the needlework um, to call me out and hold me to it. And for a long time, it took me a long time to drop my shield and my defenses, um, you know, and the word privilege was so uncomfortable. I think the word privilege is the most hard to get through uh, an understanding for, um, poor white people they do it's a they hear the word privilege and are like wait oh where um not understanding how that words the 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 systemic nuances of that word Mm -hmm. and uh so that that takes a long time and i'm really glad to be doing the work you know i know my family looks at my facebook page and my social media and so the things that i'm posting now aren't new to a lot of folks or uh, seem like basic awarenesses in this journey that's happening right now. But for my family, um, largely, not all, there there are baby steps that have to happen on a gradient so that they can have the capacity to receive this new energy. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they're just going to run the other direction and keep, you know, flying Confederate flags. Right. So I now is the time and now is the time because this momentum's not going to stop. I can feel it in my bones and, and I'll do everything I can to help keep it going. Um, but uh, now is the time for me to take my foot off the pedal a little, again, listen a lot and um, intentionally plant seeds for for those around me. I continually try <laughs> to avoid even saying for the white people around me, because I think the white people who are defensive are hearing that a lot uh, from white people, like dear white people. And mm-hmm. then, you know, speaking from their pulpit Uh, and I'm trying to avoid, I'm trying to take all of that into account. Like I do with my writing, pull out the cliches, uh, give it crisp language, inviting language and impactful language um, that also reveals something in a way that they don't feel uh, defensive or attacked. And that's hard to do really hard to do. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting to hear you, Um, speak about the listening, right? Because I feel like right now is a moment where I have felt aware of 
privilege maybe that I have in a different way for the first time. Whereas I feel like I've been able to be a voice that says, I think it's not helpful right now for us to be in that sort of self-righteous, this is what you need to do space. That is where we shut down and there isn't any progress made. But if we can all sort of listen a little bit and speak to one another about, like all of us speak to one another about what this feels like for me. And that's across the board because I have heard a lot of like, white people sit down and listen, white people do your research, which I've felt like, uh, you know, I don't actually know that that's that helpful. Right. Like, I don't know that that's that helpful for any of us to be um, speaking There's from so this. much content that has been edited and curated over the years down to a fine point. The documentary 13th, mm-hmm. like, let's all start there. Let's yeah, right. Start there Mandatory and then, watching. And then let's not talk about it just yet and move mm-hmm. on to Just Mercy. And when they see us and uh, all these things are free right now on mm. Netflix and Prime, I think. Um but, and, and, you know, I want to say, I, I feel like telling everybody, I don't, I don't know how it's going to land, but I feel like telling everybody, you know, just watch one of these documentaries or movies. Take that feeling, that nauseous, perpetually in motion, misinformed degradation mm-hmm. that you feel after that hour and a half and multiply it by history. Mm-hmm. Minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day. Because white people get to walk away from it when there is so much already uh, uh, established, so much established and inspiring information. Now's the time to watch it and listen to it and read it and understand it. That's 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 where I've been at and what I've been doing um, almost nightly since it has since all this momentum is built back up. Well, and I wonder too, you know, how much of it is. You know, there, I, I saw a few people talking about yoga, right? And so Danae and I are both, um, you know, big yogis. And I saw people saying, you know, what did you think yoga was about, right? Like yoga is about sitting in discomfort. Yoga is about quieting yourself so that you can hear the inner working, all these things that I mean, we know yoga to be about. But, um, and what's interesting is that as you're talking about this idea of sitting and listening, I'm thinking about your meditation practice and my own. And I'm thinking about how people, people like us, I don't know if that's the right kind of term, but people like us who do have this practice of shutting up and sitting down and going inward and being quiet, right? How much of our ability to listen um, or our ability to hear and sit in this really uncomfortable, gross feeling that is coming up for many white people right now, um, can I credit to that, right? And and I try to then, to your point, take this information and give it in bite-sized pieces that don't feel shaming, I guess, to those that I know don't have that maybe capacity yet to sit and be quiet and listen. Um, but that I feel like is the hardest part for me as a white woman, right, is to be able to translate it because similar to you, and I'm not from the South, but I do come from a very red area. I come mm. from a military family. They have very strong opinions. Uh, and the word privilege is the first thing that makes them bristle and shut down. Uh, and so I am struggling with what does that sound like? How how can you give somebody information that they will hear in a way that doesn't immediately make those defenses come up? Um, yeah, I don't know. I've been coming at it from an angle because there's a point of connection in everything and there's a domino effect. And so I've been trying to spread new awarenesses outside that word and, and awarenesses that deeply affect folks who generally are corralled inside that way of thinking that we're talking about in red areas. I'm in love with the idea of defunding the police mm-hmm. and knowing what that and, 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 and uh, learning more about what that means. Uh, I'll say first, it is suspect and dangerous to call all of these people heroes by right. default everywhere yeah. all the time. It's not true. Yeah. They're yeah. not all heroes. The majority are not heroes. And it takes a special kind of person to want to be a police officer or to go into law enforcement. And I know that there's special situations, largely, uh, and I haven't done all the research on this, but I feel like, you know, a lot of these folks do come from lower middle class backgrounds or or just failed football players, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> And then there's a lot of people who just didn't fucking know what they wanted to do with their lives. Mm. Um, Well, the same as the military, right? In a lot of ways. Yeah, we have to question hero. And the reason I'm bringing this up is is because going back 
is to reverse some of this thinking so that it starts to apply to everything they're seeing. If mm-hmm. I can, if I can just plant those seeds from the entire, for the entire perimeter, um, that's what's feeling like the good, the, 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 the smart move for me right now. I do want to back up and, 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 and back out of something I said earlier that I don't think I believe in when I said to watch 13th and don't even talk about it and move on to just mercy, actually watch 13th and then let's talk about it mm. and then move on to just mercy. And let's talk about that. Yeah. And then when they see us, when they see us has been the most gut punch oh. when they see us. God, that's hard to watch. Yeah. It's so. on my list it's 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 number one priority on the list and okay. that boy Danae what is that boy's name who plays oh my god I can't think of his name but that actor oh my god he's a he's so brilliant oh my god I'll cry right now just thinking about him he's on the stand oh. when he's on the stand as a as a child oh my god you know that was the same actor that played both the young boy and the man yeah unbelievable yeah, that's uh, you know, I think that that watching that I'm um, a mother of um, a three-year-old boy, right? So I think that all of this around this conversation shifted so much for me and having a son, right? Like I had the felt experience of my brother being pulled over every week by the police because he drove a nice car in a you know white neighborhood, right? So I had an awareness, but there's something that just feels so different about there is going to be a point in a couple of years from now where my son is going to go from being cute to being threatening mm-hmm. and I'm holding my breath until that day comes. Yes. Right. Yeah. And that film, I think I just like sobbed through all of it because they were boys. They were little boys. And how many more movies <sighs> exposés do we need about how fucked up the justice system is yes. before we start allowing a little intuition in the room instead of just these Right. Blunt laws that are so fucked up. But buddy, I think you actually touched on something when you talked about the idea of hero, right? I mean, there is an archetypal need that we have. Hero victim villain. Right. To to fulfill or to fill rather the the play of mm-hmm. of hero. And and we as humans genuinely want someone that's outside of ourselves mm-hmm. to tell us what to do, to tell us right and wrong, to lead us, to inspire us, right? We have such a hard time finding that within ourselves that we will grab onto anyone that we can put into that archetype, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately for in a lot of ways in this country, it has been police officers. And look, I am the daughter of a police officer. My stepfather was a police officer. Right. Okay. You're raising your hand for those who can't see you. Um, Yeah. And so for me, I think when I say let's talk about defund the police, I mean, I am sure that I'm getting a lot of bristles from my family at home, whether they tell me or not. Right. Uh, And, and it's, it's like, no, I'm not personalizing. I'm saying, let's look at the system guys. We've got to look at the system here. This isn't about individual police officers. We're Mm -hmm. talking about that's why it's called systemic, right? And are there individual police officers that are, you know, that are jerks? Of course, but I'm not singling out anyone in particular when I talk about it. I'm saying we need to kind of break it down to the bare bones and then rebuild it from the bottom up, right? Um, and this idea of hero and the archetype around that, yeah, I mean, I think it's unfortunate. And look, I not to get too political, but I think that's the same thing with what's going on with our president right now, right? I mean, we've, we've talked about this, Danae and I, in school, we talked about the idea again of, of needing this, this figure um, and, and desiring to be rescued. Mm. Uh, and there's so much suffering in this country. I mean, what you were saying too about white, the white poor population, right? There is so much suffering in this country and no one is minimizing that population suffering by saying, and there's also this other suffering. Yeah. This, this comparative suffering thing we've got going on is- like I I think it's uh, I know it was for me, so I'm sure. I mean, if it was for me, then I know it is for other people. That that it, it's also become a cliche. How often black people get pulled over, and it wasn't until this particular momentum that I really have watched it sink in with mm-hmm. with everything I've been seeing. And I I, I also I, I fear that it will sound too lax in my mm-hmm. pursuit to just say that I've been watching something every night. Um, but I have, and it is impacting. And I've, and I stay up glued to, to just to Instagram and everything going through the feed and these mm-hmm. videos and, and they are helping. They are really helping. Um, 
but back to being pulled over um, and me recognizing that is more than a cliche. It's in every single one of these things. And it's, it's every black person's experience and it's astonishing mm -hmm. and, and it does have to be uh, dismantled. And I really wish I had the catalog of language mm. for defunding the police. I don't currently have that, but watching it on John Oliver and elsewhere had got me really excited about how possible and uh, how possible it is. And that it, 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 it intuitively feels like the right direction to go. Mm -hmm. And I, I just want to say something about what I heard both of you say that I was, you know, it, these are the moments, right? Like when we meet all of this with curiosity about hearing, like, what has this experience been like for you? We are able to learn something. Like I heard both of you talk about like the archetype of police as a hero. That is not something I grew up experiencing. Yeah. Right? Anyone else in my world spoke about police in that way, right? But what I also think is really interesting is meeting with curiosity, the idea of the villains in our lives, right? Like mm -hmm. what else could be true about that? And I think that film that you were speaking about, Buddy 13th, for me was like, there is so much going on here beyond the police are villains, yeah, yeah. right? Like mm -hmm. there are systems in place making them the henchmen that go out and do other people's dirty deeds for them mm -hmm. so that they can profit off of criminalizing black people. And right. I think it's, you know, we've got to be a little curious about like sort of cementing whatever our idea is of who anyone is, right? Like mm -hmm. I'm sitting watching that thinking to myself, they are actually not the villains here. Mm -hmm. We have sort of made them the boogeyman, the people that we need to be afraid of. And I think it's someone bigger. It's someone hiding um, somewhere else that's actually pulling the strings here. Yeah. And I think that, sorry. That most recent in Atlanta, like two days ago, um, I can't think of his name right now, um, who was killed by the police and watching the video footage of what went on before and sort of like the continual seeking of a reason to bring him in when clearly he was just sort of sleeping off something in his car. But it was like, this is a quota thing. This is a, we have to bring in a certain number of black men per month and he's going to be a part of our quota. And that is not on them. Well, that's so what I was going to say is that um, I actually think it was, was it in Atlanta? The, I'm, again, I'm bad with names too. Um, it was the police chief, but he was a black police chief. And he was talking about how police officers now do too much. And he was saying, you know, yes. we have a stray dog problem right now yes. and we're the dog catcher. Yeah. You know, we have a problem with, you know, X, Y, and Z and we're doing, and, and he went through all of these things that should never be part of right. a police officer's job description. Right. And how basically they've gotten, you know, because there's, everything's defunded. Mental health care services have been defunded. Well, now they're performing those duties too, right? And it's, so to your point, this idea of them being, you know, not necessarily the boogeyman that we have to be focused on. What we need to be focused on is why are we putting all of these things on these people's plates that are not trained to be the ones handling this stuff, right? Not, and again, let's follow not, that model. Not trained being the key words and yeah. not even yes. mentally equipped often. Right. Times. Not, not the tool belt for compassion. Yes. Uh, yes. Compassion in it or empathy. Um, just uh, an aggressive authority. Again, um, it does take a, certain, a special kind of person. And that's not all intended as insult. Some of it, it's not all intended as insult. There is an aggression by default there that uh comes first mm -hmm. um and so no i don't think there's there's there does need to be more training ah, can you train into yes i mean there is there is a idea that empathy is something that we are all born with and can be strengthened as a skill as well and it's i mean look at therapists right i mean we are literally training to increase our our muscle for empathy and compassion. Right. Um, yeah. And I would even say your Vipassana practice, like part of what you get out of Vipassana, out of meditation, is a strengthened compassion for self and thus a strengthened compassion for others. You're, I'm aiming at how to get them in that class though. <laughs> right, well, that's, I mean, that's a whole other question. <laughs> well, and I think, I think compassion, right? Like yeah. I think compassion becomes the way yes. that we get there. Like I've been so struck by the compassion that I've felt for um, white men in this moment in this country. <laughs> Speaking of like, you know, and, and that's not necessarily the, um, the most popular point of view. I was watching that policeman who did that, God awful thing to George Floyd and, and so struck with, Oh my God, what happened to you that mm. you could put your knee on another human being's mm. neck, watch the life draining out of him in front of you and not, and not stop what you're doing. Right. 
And so I got to sort of say, how can I meet this person with compassion in an attempt to understand how we got here? And I think when we meet people with compassion, similar to what you were saying, um, buddy, before about, you know, the resistance that comes with speaking to our privilege, I can speak to my privilege, you know, the ways that I have sort of over these last couple of weeks been doing inventory of where have I had blind spots about where I've been privileged, maybe not by the color of my skin, but maybe socioeconomically, I've been privileged and I've been blind to that. And if I speak to that, maybe that helps someone see like this is all of us like just living in a country where we have the means that we do in america we are privileged like they're i don't know it's all of us i love you putting it all out on the table too and speaking of compassion toward that man those are the daring kinds of thoughts Mm -hmm. that we all get to have Mm -hmm. that aren't right or wrong they're just awarenesses you know uh, five weeks after 9 11 there was a concert in Central Park, I believe, uh, and Richard Gere came out on stage mm-hmm. um, and said, we can turn this violence and negativity into love, into compassion, into understanding. Mm-hmm. And the crowd... They booed him off the stage. Booed him. Yeah. And yeah. all I could think was, all it came across as is a nation of Christians going, we will not be caught dead acting like Jesus Christ. Mm. Yeah. Yes. That brings tears to my eyes. We will not be caught dead acting like Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. We are just going to fuck shit up. We're just going to, we're just going to boo the idea of compassion toward this policeman. By the way, I'm not championing that policeman. Yeah. But it's important. I'm just, I am championing having these conversations and saying the scary thoughts like you just did. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also like one of my scary thoughts right now, because I don't know I'm so much, <laughs> period. Um, one of my scary thoughts is that of all the things I've watched over these last weeks uh, of the, I don't know, two dozen movies and the 200 plus hours of Instagram and, <laughs> and, the, and the articles and the interviews are um, the one person who has resonated with me the most is Louis Farrakhan. Mm-hmm. And that's terrifying. Just <laughs> and specifically YouTube Louis Farrakhan on the Donahue show and watch that man mm-hmm. patiently, gently school that entire audience and uh, I, 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 and then I Wikipedia'd him because I remember everybody hated him when I was a kid, and I I could have cared less because I was just being a kid, and didn't you know didn't even give it any mind. I just remember the negative vibe around that dude. So I I Wikipedia'd him, and he's polarizing in the black community too. He's, mm-hmm. he's polarizing all around, and I haven't found a video yet where I don't love him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. And, I saw him do a round table in an auditorium and there were, I don't know, there were seven prominent black figures at it. I know Cornell West was, was at the table and they were all jamming with each other, mm-hmm. I mean, loving on information with each other. And he was right there in the center of it. Felt like he was leading it, frankly. Um, so yeah, uh, that's one of my scary thoughts right now is how much I love Louis <laughs> Farrakhan. Um, I love this idea of like, of the scary thought. I love the idea of what, can we ask ourselves that question and answer it honestly, not mm-hmm. just to ourselves, but maybe to people around us, right? To actually admit what the scary thoughts are out loud because we all have them yeah. and we're all allowed to have them. And the fact that we, I would actually say one of the, the, the biggest issues is that we don't feel like we're allowed to share them. Um, and so when we stuff them down, that's when the shame grows and it starts to rot. And if we bring up those scary thoughts, and actually discuss them with each other and do it with curiosity. I mean, yours is funny. I'm just having this vision of a white boy at a party and everybody sharing their scary thought. And you saying yours? Everyone going, oop, too scary. (laughs) (laughs) But it's, you know, I think from a depth psychology perspective, we would call that um, our shadow, right? right? And so I think what, we are in the midst of is our collective shadow being presented to us in a way that we are no longer able to look away from it. Mm-hmm. And as we are confronted with our shadow, how do we meet it? Right? Like, do we want to mm-hmm. continue to meet it with resistance or can we meet it with a little bit of openness to sit down here, shadow, sit down here, scary thought, like let us make friends and let me 
be curious about what there is for you to teach me right now, what I can learn from you. You know what I'm so in love with right now is also continuing constantly to pull it all out of um, uh, hero, victim, villain, Mm. because we are that, we are. Mm -hmm. Yes. Isn't that holding pattern? And the more we come out of it, the more we get to talk about elevating, really elevating, really. Mm. And the goal here is enlightenment. That's that's one of the terrifying thoughts for me to say. Mm-hmm. The goal here is enlightenment, which Buddha says you can't make a goal. But you guys know, what, <laughs> you, guys know you guys know what I'm talking about, and it's it's continually important for me to stay consistent and to continue to get the information and not sacrifice the metaphysical awarenesses and mm-hmm. and, and the well being because I am so all or nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, as I've been reading and watching, I'm just like, oh fuck, I gotta be, I gotta be, you know in people's faces at all times with this. And um, I found I found out in the first week and a half, it was mm-hmm. so exhausting. I had to find yeah. a balance or I was gonna be completely ineffective. My ripple effect mm-hmm. was gonna be shit. And that's an mm-hmm. important thing to maintain as a healthy ripple effect. Mm. Yeah. Well, and I, I think also this idea of the, of the victim and the hero and the, you know, what comes up for me a lot with clients is that when you step out of victimhood, all of a sudden you have to look at what your part in the situation was and you have to take ownership and responsibility. Right. Mm -hmm. And that is really scary for people because then they have to look at themselves in a way they've never looked at themselves before. Um, Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden now the ability to grow or the ability to evolve or get past something is in their hands and no one else's another scary thought right? Because now you can't blame anybody else for staying stuck. You can't blame anybody else for staying angry, for staying small, for staying unevolved. All these things that people, I would say, seek out, you know, whether it's like Danae and I with therapy, seek this stuff out because they want to do these things. They don't know how. That's one of the steps. You have to step step out of victimhood. Mm. I'm so thankful for y'all's jobs and the patience required in it. Mm. It's so many angles to consider. But ideally, they all play into each other. Uh, ho- hopefully, like you know, they learn. Like I was saying earlier, one, one learn one thing, and then it, it dominoes into right. eye opening for everything else. I, I did it. <laughs> I'm doing it. So that's um, that's really hopeful. Yeah, and it feels like all of these, um, the victim, villain that they are constructs, right? Like bringing it back to your film farmly. I was so struck. You sort of talk about like being poor as a rumor, you know, like I loved that idea of like so many of the things that we sort of believe are real and true are not necessarily that, right? Like Mm -hmm. I I remember being so struck, um, you know, just when I was in my training, going into a socioeconomic situation that was very different from how I grew up. We were sort of doing work with the teenagers there. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, these kids grew up in a very different socioeconomic status than I did, right? And I was so struck by how much I was wrong about their lives and what Mm -hmm. I didn't understand about being, quote, poor in America, right? Like, I thought, you are, like, constant suffering. You hate your life. (laughs) Like, I just, it's what I thought it was like, right? These kids were the top of their class, had all gotten um, scholarships to go to college, and they were terrified. And they were terrified because they loved the community of living in the trailer park and they didn't know what life was going to be like without that. And they loved their lives and their lives were rich. And so like just hearing them talk about community in a way that I hadn't experienced, it was so different than what I'd experienced. And I was like, this is a construct, you know, like someone is poor and so who says who is rich and who is poor. And I feel like I've heard and felt you speaking to that in that film so beautifully. There's a terror around etiquette. I don't know why that's coming up for me. Mm. There's a terror around etiquette coming from a from a, from a poor space. And when you said, you know, them having to leave their community and going off to college, I, I can't um, imagine the moment, you know, the situations that those initial situations. I mean, I can't imagine those initial situations, even on small levels where etiquette becomes new from every angle. And then to be around wealthy mm. people. That's its mm. own terror because their worth isn't in question. Mm. And which is also, again, back to the race situation. Right. Black people's worth has always been in question. Mm. Yeah. 
Let that sink in, eh? Yeah. Seriously. Mm. I, I uh, woke up from a delightful nap right before I, mm. I did this interview and feel like um, I scattered a bunch, but uh, I think we all get the gist of the points that we're trying to make here and that it's coming from a place of love and wanting to spread that and and finding ways to flip cliches for people um, and, and, and create crisp language and, and new ways of approaching people who may not be getting why this momentum is so important. And then also uh, elevating to uh, presence and serendipity because there's a love that lives in there. It's undeniable. And when people experience it, it's only experiential. That which is theory can be disproven and that which is experiential can only be disbelieved. And I would love for more people to experience it so they can believe what it is we're talking about here. We have a couple of finishing up questions that we ask all our guests, if we could ask you um, before we go. The first question is, what breaks your heart? Elephants. Hmm. <laughs> For those of you who can't see me, I just have a sad face like, oh. <laughs> Compassion is, a, is half sadness and half joy. That's all. What's yeah. that question? Yeah. <laughs> Elephants break my heart. <sighs> Our next question is, what do you find yourself um, doing that keeps you in a flow state? So where do you find flow? Meditation. So it's mm-hmm. dhamma.org, if I may, D-H-A-M-M-A.org is, is where I found it for myself. Um, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's free. If anybody tries to charge you money, you're in the wrong place. It's like the boot camp of meditation. It's 10 days, uh, free room and board to get grounded and to get established in a technique. Mm. in my 46 years of seeking it's the only thing that i have uh experienced to eradicate suffering on the root level there's so many Mm. surface soothing things we can do from exercise to creating art but this technique really eradicates suffering on the root level and there's no idol worship or rites or rituals nobody's going to jam crystals up their butt and you know A certain number of incense sticks and spin a wheel a certain number of times. It's just science. You know, if you hate air, you're not going to like this. Mm. Otherwise, otherwise, you should be good. That's so sad. Um, and the last one's a light one. What's your favorite food, buddy? Double cheeseburgers. <laughs> Big, juicy, squishy double cheeseburgers. <laughs> Fair. I mean, you know. I hear yeah, it. That. We've heard all the spectrums. It's great. With I love this all question. The condiments with all of the condiments and extra cheese and juicy and soft buns. Mm. <laughs> uh, you know, I have a friend who doesn't like condiments. <laughs> Just one big sloppy double cheeseburger. Thank you for asking. <laughs> That's beautiful. Well, buddy, you know, I've heard Vanessa speak so highly of you for so long, and it is just such a joy to get to meet you and experience you for myself. You are such a light in the world. So thank you for all that you are. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for agreeing to come on with us, buddy. I really um, enjoyed this conversation and I miss you and I hope to see you in the flesh soon and for you to meet the little one and I can't wait to meet the little one. (laughs) Thank y'all so much for having me. Thanks Thanks, again, buddy. buddy. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to share it with a friend, subscribe, and give us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you want to connect with us more, find us on Instagram at Cheaper Than Therapy, the podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.